0: Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarron, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So now we're doing our second part of this quarantine. Andrew, you were just speaking of what Sparrow was just speaking of, which is that we haven't heard from you, and you're the one that's in New York and are riding the curve. Yeah, well, I think I'm still digesting it.
1: Um, so I didn't have a lot to say last time. Um, we've been in uh, a pretty strictly enforced quarantine now, both um, enforced by the city, but more spearheaded by Elisa, my partner, my life partner, for I guess five weeks. I thought the first few weeks were great.
0: <laughs>
1: there was a real silver lining in the great pause and finding my um, biorhythms on, on some level in terms of sleep cycles taking an afternoon nap trying to get some reading and writing in uh of course spending time with my family and that was really um pretty sweet then i would say like this past week i um had a challenging time emotionally i felt um claustrophobic and uh, wanting my old life back. And I guess just like feeling the regret that I hadn't left the city earlier a little bit. I think absorbing the grief that's out there and, and the anger hey. as well, and the good stuff too, the, uh, the growth and return to the inner life. But it made for um, a powerful emotional alchemy, a like series of um, shifts. Pretty much from um, I guess before e- you know from maybe Good Friday from the last conversation maybe uh-huh. it's appropriate right uh, to the to the present but um, I feel um, a little better today we just uh, Lisa Sophia, and I went up to the roof oh. and we did and we, we made up some impressionistic games and dances and just sort <laughs> of um, we're whirling dervishes on the roof and that really um, tends to I don't know bring a nice chi back into you know, into the, into the mix. Oh, it's great, you can get up on the roof. Yeah, we have, we have access to the roof with one other person, so it's pretty um, safe up there. You know, it's, it's a really nice spot. You can see Central Park, you, you can kind of see the Hudson River, and there's a big, big blue open sky above it because we're one of the taller buildings. But it's, uh, that's definitely uh, a, a plus, that's for sure.
0: Are you guys all getting along, like, with each other? Or have there been periods of, you know, there can be in in such close circumstance, um, you know, anger, frustration, things like that? Oh, yeah. We,
1: um, you know, had ups and downs after Sophia was born, adjusting family life, and then had uh, worked through a lot of that and had a a nice few years. And um, this experience, I think, has been really pleasant for my marriage Elisa and i've been really enjoying each other's company but i think some of the intensity out there can cause like my neuroses or what she perceives to be my neuroses to become amplified (laughs) (laughs) from her perspective so there's sympathy but there's also kind of exasperation with uh stuff that i do predictably um i guess over time but i'm just doing more of now and more intensely because mm. of uh, the ecological realities. but I think that's all part of the practice of being in a relationship so I, I think it's all pretty meaningful and neither good nor bad it's but all three of us have had definitely moments where we've been cranky or <laughs> you know felt misunderstood or you know these sorts of things but uh, you sure. Know, We've been, I think, doing a pretty good job. I'll give us a B plus working through <laughs> scrapes in a way that's constructive and modeling for Sophia what it means to have a disagreement, but then kind of make up and move on. There's merit there for her, for Sophia. So not like we're tearing each other apart, you know. Sure. But, but there is no space to get into an argument in our apartment. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. I mean, unless Sophia's asleep.
0: <laughs> you know? Well, it's super duper important for people to be upset with each other and then to reconcile and to mirror that process for kids so they don't, um, so they don't become inflexible.
1: I couldn't agree more. I, th- I wonder how Sophia is going to remember this, even though I'm worried about her being isolated or not being at school, or missing first grade. I think she's going to remember this as a very fun experience. Definitely,
0: mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah, yeah, it'll be interesting. Her whole generation will have gone through this particular sequestration, and it'll have a profound generational. It'll change. It'll change a, a generation of people going through something like this. And I would hope that it will be a great bloom of inwardness and and of. You know, gaining satisfactions, not from reaching and for this and that and uh, outwardly, but in through their inner lives.
1: Yeah, I've been reading a little bit from this book written by um, a Tibetan nun, a, br- a British Tibetan nun by the name of um, Tenzin
0: Palma. Oh, Bloomsbury. She, she, she spent was- a lot of time, I believe. Isn't she the one who spent 10 years living in isolation in the mountains. Absolutely, um, she
1: she left her job as a librarian in London at the age of twenty one. Huh. She, she moved to to India, um, joined this monastery, and then after that decided to become a recluse and found mm. occupied um, an abandoned ancient Buddhist recluse cave in the Himalayas and um, lived there for uh, twelve years. for 12 years uh, and at times meditating 12 hours a day you know very intense experience of isolation and she wrote this book about the experience called a cave in the snow huh a cave in the snow and I I've been finding and I've been listening to some of her um, interview clips on YouTube and similar to Pema Chodron I I find some of it uh, inspiring and thoughtful and Reflective, but, but more so than Pema Chodron. I, I think this woman's voice—it um, just uh, she's very very smart and I very um, hopeful too in the way she um, talks about the uh, the inner life and the process and the uh, the struggle, the disintegration, the coming back together of men- mental phenomena, emotions. Uh, she just has a, a wonderful way of explaining what it means to be when you stop and really listen to the rhythms and become aware, I guess, live in the present a little bit
0: more. That book was published by Bloomsbury. Yeah. Right. In 2003. Yeah. I was uh, tangentially involved with that publication. You were? Yeah. Awesome. Well, I used to represent Bloomsbury, you know, when we did, when I had a public relations company in New York and the um, early part of uh, that would have been in the late 90s and that's when that book was taken on by Bloomsbury and I guess it took a little bit of time for it to come out. And now she's a teacher, is that
1: it? She goes around? Yeah, spiritual teacher. I think she's still based in some um, monastery in either England or India, but she, uh, I know she she comes through and does a lecture circuit on occasion do you guys have any, do you know of any reclusive writers? Have you been drawn to monastic texts? Whether it's Walden or the lives of the desert fathers and mothers. You
2: mean as a result of all this uh, quarantine?
1: Yeah, even Melville, has any author who's written about quarantine or, or isolation, deep solitude come to you in your thoughts and in in the analogies that you've um, conjured trying to make sense of it all?
0: Well, I think, you know, I would say that the life of the poet inherently and also of artists generally is one of of solitude and of reclusiveness and of minding an invisible garden. Hmm. And so, you know, so I think there's a a lot of literature that is within that scope.
2: I haven't uh, particularly thought about it lately. I mean, I'm usually, you know, thinking a little bit about Thoreau. I like Thoreau's writing a lot, but I don't read it much. Uh, Sam and I are working, as we told you, on this kind of weird book about Dag Hammarskjöld, uh, yeah. who wrote this book, Markings, that maybe yeah. you were going to help us write.
1: I, I know Markings. I've read Markings.
2: Yeah. So, I mean, I'm looking around in markings every day to kind of make artworks about it. I make these little sort of, I don't know how to describe it. I found a bunch of index cards, big index cards in the garage, and I turn these index cards into little art objects that involve writing out selections from, from markings and then combining, lately combining them with my own poems. And Markings has a you know a very solitudinous uh, quality. I mean, he never married, and he uh, he liked he liked the Hudson Valley, like us. He, he had a house somewhere like in Rhinebeck or something.
1: What, was he Danish? Was or was he? I know was Danish. well he, he was Swedish. S- and Swedish and,
2: was- and apparently gay. I mean, Auden implies in the introduction that Dag Hammarskjold is gay.
0: Well, and, but in fact, uh, at the same time, Sparrow, he was far from an isolate in that he was the Secretary General of the United Nations. Right, right, I know. <laughs> I mean,
2: but he seemed like a very spiritual guy, and he seemed like a guy who was sort of simultaneously in the world and outside the world.
0: They talk about in the spiritual life, as it were, uh, that one's relationship with life should be as a bee in a dish of honey, that, you know, you just graze at the edges. <laughs>
2: you know, I will read right now the the sentence. It's one sentence I chose from Markings. Somewhat, uh, I think I just found it at random. I just opened the book and put my finger down and found it. And it is kind of on the subject of what we're talking about. pray that your loneliness may spur you into finding something to live for great enough to die for.
1: Well, that's um, that's a real, uh, that's a real aphorism, right?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of them are aphoristic, and of course, I'm, I don't know if you know this about me, but I'm a kind of an aphorism generator. I'm drawn to the more aphoristic elements in uh, markings.
0: One thing that one might be able to think of marks in terms of what we're going through is that everybody right now has a certain mark around them that is their own space, right? Like we have a kind of sense of a boundary that is a different boundary. You know, it's a much more limited scope that we live within, right?
2: And sometimes you see on uh, Twitter like the actual physicalization of that perimeter where somebody's walking around in a giant plastic bubble, like a literal plastic bubble. Or there was a guy in um, Italy who made this uh, circular wooden object that he's he's in the middle of it. And he's it's supported by like sort of ropes on his shoulders, like suspenders. And he's got this this big like the rings of Saturn around his uh, waist, keeping everyone five feet away, physically five feet away from him.
0: <laughs> I was thinking that perhaps one fashion that might emerge from this period of sequestration is the reintroduction of the cane of like a <laughs> six, six foot staff that people carry around to mark out their distance from another mm. person.
2: The way blind people have the cane in front of the taps in front of them. I could
0: imagine that. Right. But carrying around like a staff. Um, You know, which was customary, say, 500 years ago, you know, or at some period in which on the road you would, you know, have the staff in part as a form of protection, maybe. Like Mm -hmm. Little John back in Sherwood Forest, he would walk with this big staff, as I recall. That was part of his, you know, action.
2: And my wife does, I think, what she calls sword work in Aikido. Where she has a big wooden staff like that, and they have routines they do with it. They learn a kind of, almost like a kind of dance that you do with your staff. For the same reason, I think, because I guess medieval Japan also had a staff.
0: I mean, I thought we were just going to open up the spigot on Sparrow's, you know, research on what we're going through. And uh, then I also have a poem that I found. And we could talk about Sam Peeps. But, you know, to be honest, it's not all that interesting. You know, his diary is inherently interesting. Mm. And the way in which the plague becomes integrated with the recounting of a day Is interesting um, you know because it's sort of like an aside for me it's of interest when I was living in Dublin my friend Dan who's an older guy sort of a sage person with whom I connected a carpenter he you know we talked about Northern Ireland and he said oh Sam how it is in Northern Ireland is that a woman uh, will want to go buy something at the store and there'll have been some cataclysmic event, and for her it's nothing. She's used to it. Huh. It's a perpetual cycle of violence and of bombs, and who knows what's going on. And for her, what's irritating is that she's—this sounds a little sexist, but this is what the analogy he used. You know that she was um, would have to go the long way around <laughs> to get to the market. Or the market would be closed, you know, for some period of time, and she had to prepare dinner. That it's an inconvenience.
2: And that's kind of like now, you mean?
0: That it's incidental to the ongoing force of life. But now that force of life no longer exists. (laughs) It's not external to our experience. We're inside of it. It's kind Mm. of like the Internet. The Internet was... Created as a system of communication after the apocalypse, right? After in a nuclear war, you'd still be able to communicate through the internet. So, all of this stuff, even the medium through which we're speaking now, is post apocalyptic. We're inside the event.
2: Or the apocalypse that the internet was created for has now arrived. And the internet seems very happy about the whole thing. If one can think of the internet as having emotions, it seems like it's really, you know, it's like a teenager that suddenly is necessary in a wartime condition. You know, he's let's say a 16 year old kid. Nobody really thinks about him much. And suddenly there's a crisis and everybody needs this kid to rush to the store and get milk. That's what the internet is like now. It's suddenly immensely valuable.
1: The internet has now become the outer net. Yeah. (laughs) That's a good line. (laughs)
2: And my my daughter was Zoom bombed. She was? uh, Yeah, on this uh, poetry reading. Uh I gave this poetry reading like I think two weeks ago, it's impossible to remember exactly how time works, um, you know, in this current situation. But I would think it was almost two weeks ago on a Thursday night, I gave a reading at a weekly reading series. And then the next reading that I tried to listen, to go to, but I couldn't get, the, couldn't get on the Zoom cast, that was Zoom-bombed. I think that's the term by some evil racist. I guess someone who mm, s- projected all these evil images onto the screen and upset everyone.
1: Cyber terrorist. Uh cyber terrorist.
2: Mysteria. I said to my daughter, "Who was it? Is it a teenager? Is it a Russian? Is it a terrorist?" She said, "I don't know." <laughs> That's part of the horror of it. You don't know what's going on exactly.
1: Yeah, I'm on Zoom so much through all this, and um, I really um, don't care for it. Oh, really? Well, I mean, there are aspects of it that I like, but um, I guess um, at least as a teacher, I guess one thing I've realized is that um, embodiment is a big piece of my teaching practice, I think. Mm Mm-hmm presence and the attentiveness of presence and I think body language and stuff that doesn't necessarily translate over zoom or not as readily
0: quarantine why don't you unpack for a or um you know open your aphoristic hoard of information <laughs> sparrow around the sequestration the yeah pause. okay
2: so here I go um i am I'm going to just read through my vast notes about the nature of this social isolation as it affects me living here in Phoenicia, New York, in this hamlet in the Catskill Mountains. One thing that's simultaneously going on, obviously, is the return of spring, as if somehow the people dying are somehow Uh, nurturing the soil. I mean, it's a terrible thing to even say, although it is a tradition, I think, in pagan societies where the goddess sleeps with some lusty young man, then kills him, puts his blood in the soil, and then the crops will grow that year. But whatever it means, spring is arising right now. And my wife and I are taking walks because my friend Michelle told me that's what she's doing with her husband. So then I got sort of envious of them, and I said, why can't we take walks? (laughs) So we started taking these nature walks, and uh, on flat areas, because I have a bad knee, and everything is steep here, but there's a few places where uh, the world is somewhat, uh, you know, untilted. And, And my wife happens to be a naturalist, so she's pointing out these amazing little beings to me. And part of what's going on with me is I, am, um, I have a kind of addiction to going to art museums and galleries and seeing art made by people. And I can't do that now. So I've started to kind of turn to nature. Or suddenly nature looks like art to me. So um, she was showing me these tiny little jewel like leaves. They're the leaves of a rose bush. The leaves, when they first appear on the ground from a rose bush, are, are red. Then later yeah. they turn uh, green. And then she showed me, I said, What's that tiny little purple flower? She said, Ground ivy. So Anyway, that's one, so on to my next note. I'm reading a lot more than I have for years. And also I'm watching TV shows. I even have time, normally I'm too sort of puritanical to watch TV shows, but my wife and I are watching, whatever anybody tells me to watch. We watched this great movie with Hedy Lamarr 1946 called The Strange Woman. It's one of those Hollywood movies that simultaneously wildly feminist and completely misogynist. I don't want to like describe the whole plot, but I will tell you it's 1820s noir set in Maine, set in Bangor, Maine. Uh, I mean, I don't recommend things, but I must say I loved it. And uh, another thing about me is I really don't believe all this stuff about washing your hands. I'm just against, I hate washing my hands. I even researched on the, I mean, I know I'm not allowed to say this out loud, but I even went on the internet and looked up the possibility that washing your hands weakens your immune system. And I did find something on salon, but it was really, you had to wash your hands so much that they start to like uh, chap or to the point that they get like deep furrows in them because you've like washed them an incredible amount. And at that point, when there's furrows in your hand, obviously germs can get in then. But I don't know, it just seems, it's just too obsessive for my uh, interest. Another thing that I'm doing again is talking on the phone. I've always loved talking on the phone, but maybe partly from living with my wife who basically gets annoyed when I speak on the phone for two hours to someone. I've stopped doing it, but now I can do it again. I can walk around the house, have long conversations with people. It's really nice. It's like my favorite medium, really. I don't like uh, physical people, it turns out, so much. I love people's voices. And I find it, I think it's some kind of eroticism for me, actually. Another thing that happened is I was doing my uh, poetry class on a Thursday night and I did a drawing, and one of my students said, I love that drawing, can I buy that drawing from you? I drew a picture of a soda can. I called it Blop soda, B-L-O-P, and my student, Chimmy, she said, can I buy that drawing from you? And I said, sure. So I sent it in an envelope to her with two other of my drawings, and then she sent me a thank you note, and out of it, well, poured, Two $5 bills. I'm looking at these $5 bills, and I'm like, yes, I remember this stuff. Money. I'd, like, forgotten about the existence of money. I was thinking, yeah, this stuff was once very valuable. What am I going to do with it now? Like, it had been, like, three weeks since I'd used physical money, maybe longer because I don't use it much in my normal life. And then, so it's just kind of, it's kind of, I've reached that point. Where you know, it's like being on acid or something. Where like even Holy normal cow.
0: things like my wife
2: it. took me for a ride in the car to go on one of our walks was like sonic wow. paralysis. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just pouring it out like you told
0: me. Anyway, there was a certain <laughs> crashing on this in the sonic field.
2: I just wanna read this poem because I was just about to read it. That's it. Then I can stop after that. This is a poem I wrote called "2020." Unemployment is the new employment. Toilet paper is the new money. Skype is the new telephone. Staying home is the new activism.
0: Nice. Here, here. That's a great caption. The uh, the circumstance and the situation. Oh, yeah. I think the the phrase "staying home" is the new activism is compelling um you know it's activist i guess in part you mean because there's a percentage of the population that doesn't want to be staying home or wants everybody to go back to work oh. um, or that there's that kind of pressure that's going to be coming. you know that's present from the executive branch i think you call it And so staying home is the new activism. I mean, and also like coming back to home, like leaving the our prescribed outer official, what is human life, which has to do with nation states and economies and movements and things like that. But, you know, coming back, staying home is the new activism from that standpoint is interesting for me. So I don't know, did that make sense? Completely, yeah. it resonates with me as well. It's been a bummer connection,
1: unfortunately. But you know what, that's all part of the experience of the moment we're in, even, mm. even the cutting out, because a lot of these um, platforms are being overused or uh, used to a point where I, they're not as effective. Someone, yeah. was me, someone was telling me that recently,
2: Yeah, I heard the guy, the president of Zoom, the CEO of Zoom, being interviewed on Bloomberg Radio recently, and, uh, you know, he was um, clearly under enormous pressure. You know, his uh, platform had multiple, you know, suddenly was like 25 times as active as it had been the week before, you know.
1: Yeah, I mean, that's a big, big spike.
2: Yeah, and, you know, people are working 24 hours a day at the headquarters or wherever they do it. I guess, uh, what's the word, remotely? But yeah, I guess it is hard to keep up with the demand for zoominess.
0: Sounds great, sonic, chamboree. Nobody is moving faster than the speed of sound. So uh <laughs> hey Andrew hey, hey Sparrow so I think we're <laughs> once more back in the jamboree. Yeah, it's interesting that Zoom has has taken such a uh, leap forward and is, you know, something we didn't know existed 3 weeks ago. Um it's interesting in terms of its sonic association with doom. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
2: I thought you were going to say that it's like zooming ahead suddenly. It's like
0: it's oh, become
2: yeah. its name. Right. It is, in a way, the zoom of doom.
0: So I do have a poem that uh, that I found that I wanted to impart. And mm. we read Robert Duncan uh, last session. And then, you know, I sort of thought we could reach around um, into another Berkeley Renaissance poet. Um, And I thought, uh, uh, Jack Spicer. Mm. I found this by chance, by a chance opening of the collected books of Jack Spicer that Robin (laughs) Blazer, you know, among others, put together. And this is from Spicer's The Heads of the Town Up to the Ether, published in 19... 61, or you know, made. It was never really published. You know how it was with Spicer, and it's made up of three sections. And this is uh, from Homage to Creeley. That is oh. Robert Creeley, the poet, of course, and and it includes that form that you know we're most familiar with, maybe from William Carlos Williams's Descent to Hell.
2: Oh yeah, Cora. Is that Descent right? To Descent to Cora. Cora.
0: Yeah in which he has like text, and then he has a mirror text on the bottom, separated, I think, by a line. And similarly, Spicer is using that form, (coughs) in this case, uh, in this homage to Creeley. And the poem that I landed on is entitled, It is Forbidden to Look. So I'm going to read the top of the town, as it were, It couldn't get my feeling loose. Like a goose, I traveled. Well, sheer hell is where your apartness is your apartment. Apartness, I mean hell, is where they don't even pick flowers. What
2: was that line, where your apartness is your apartness?
0: Yeah, let me read it again. It couldn't get my feeling loose. Like a goose, I traveled. Well, sheer hell is where your apartness is your apartness. Mm -hmm. I mean, hell is where they don't even pick flowers.
1: Mm. I really really love the cadences in that. Huh. I like the last line.
0: Yeah, where they don't even pick flowers. Well, I mean, you weren't picking flowers with Violet. No, she picked picked a flower now and then. I think Violet, yeah. But, um, oh, yeah, so you did pick Flower. Yeah, so it's connected to that, I think, you know, quite aptly. Mm. And then this sense of hell. And what is the nature of hell, which Spicer is pointing to, I guess?
2: Yeah, it reminds me when I was in London, I was reading Dante, and I called up the British Museum. It sounds like impossible, but I called up the British Museum, and I said, I'd really like to speak to a Dante scholar. And they said, okay, well, hold on for a second. And then they gave me a Dante scholar, and then I made an appointment to talk to him. And mm. and then I went there, and he spoke to me about Dante. I said, you know, what do you think about Dante? <laughs> and, and the only thing I remember, I mean, this was 1986, you know, the only thing I remember him saying is, uh, he said, I think for Dante, uh, hell was exile. I think that's what he said. You know, because Dante was literally exiled from God when uh-huh. he wrote uh, the Divine Comedy. And, of course, we're all exiled from heaven here on earth, you know, which I think is kind of the idea of, of the poignant idea of hell as being eternally separated from God. I'm no expert, but I think that's the idea.
0: And I guess right now we're being separated from an outer life separated from society, but we're kind of not. We're doing a workaround. Um, <laughs> separated from everyone we're...
2: but our wife.
0: Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. And we're, but we're also kind of separated from mammon. Oh, yeah.
2: <clears throat> from money, you know, like I was Separated
0: from money, yeah. And that, in a way, for many, constitutes a kind of a paradisical state in terms of... What's the name of that band?
1: Rage Rage Against Against the Machine. machine.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But I guess also there's an apartness in the state of exile. And what Spicer is saying, hell is where your apartness is your apartness.
2: Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. Also this interesting, like, apartness and also apartment.
2: Yeah, which is how you read it the first time.
0: Ah, And I thought, yeah,
2: your apartness is... There's a country western song I heard years ago where, like, the guy breaks up with the girl and then she leaves and takes all her stuff out of the house and he sings, apartment, apartment, I never knew what apartment, something like that. Wow.
0: (laughs) I was thinking about it the other day. Well, can I read the last of this poem? Yes. So this is the averse side.
2: Oh, that's right. You read the top part. Now you're reading the sort of uh, interpretation down below or something.
0: Uh, The edges of a mirror have their own song to sing. The sickness seems alien to the poet, and he equates his own hell with what is between them. He refers to Persephone as vaguely as she could be seen there. Mm. Yeah, in part, this book is tied up with Cocteau's uh, Orphe. Mm-hmm. So now we've gotten here to the edge of the universe, and now we're going to go back. So we, So what we've done is three days later four days later, I guess it's been, Uh, we're coming back to continue the second transmission on what we're collectively going through, which is a state of quarantine or, you know, in in its many manifestations. And where we left off was with Jack Spicer's poem, It is Forbidden to Look Back. And the basis of that Is This section of poems is in part based on him sort of riffing on Williams, but also doing his own cora in hell and doing his own form of improvisations. And it's based in part on Cocteau's Orphe, which has a mirror. And the way in which you go to the underworld is by passing through the mirror. And so what we're doing now is turning back and looking where we were last time and if there was anything that we wanted to amplify on that and also a little bit mirroring that structure which I think is completely relevant to what we're going through. Sam, what is the Jack
1: Spicer line about a partner's up when your apartness becomes a partner or is a partner? Can you reread that because that's that's a A mirror
0: moment for me. Is where your apartness is your apartness. Where your apartness is your apartness, I think it is. And I sort of, you know, I looked at it and I was like, oh, it is forbidden to look back. And what it is, you know, it's Orpheus. He looks back and Eurydice is gone, right?
2: Right. He's not allowed to turn back and look at her or what? She will be returned to the underworld forever. Something like that
0: yeah exactly and i and i think that for spicer what it is is that you can't look back to see that the poem is there Hmm. that there's an aspect in which you know the where the messages come from in poetry in writing poetry and being in that wavelength you don't want to take apart the radio you don't want to you don't want to Look back to make sure it's there, or the spell will be broken and Eurydice will be sent back to hell.
1: Mm -hmm. So that's
0: part of this poem. But also, Mm. I had this whole crazy sort of idea, but I think it's probably not true. And, but nevertheless, that, you know, Spicer didn't like the beats, he was part of that what was it called six spot or five, six, uh, spot six where that's where Al- Ginsberg gave his
1: right, reading Al- of
0: how the first time, but Spicer felt very, uh, uh, against the beats because they like to gr- gang together. They always like to move in a posse. Hmm. And so for him, a part of his, sort of sense of hell is where your apartness is your apartness. If you're a bee, you're somebody who's apart. You're making a stance that you're separate, that you're uh, autonomous in some way. And then you begin to identify your apartness as being that social apartness, as opposed to your true or inner apartness. Hmm. And that's the mirror into which... You're forbidden to look behind. It was the sixth gallery, I think.
2: Oh yeah, yeah. that sounds right. The sixth yeah, gallery. where where Ginsberg gave his famous first reading of Howell and Jack Kerouac passed around a jug of wine. Everyone got loaded. It was a magical moment, unrivaled in the history of poetry. In the Beat uh, mythology, it's at a central moment. And I was at the reading, Alan Ginsberg's 25th anniversary reading of Howl at Columbia University, and it was in this academic setting. He's on the stage. He starts reading, and it was something like he had to stop because the video cameras were in the way, or he wanted to make sure it got videoed correctly. It was just the opposite of that spontaneous moment that, was the birth of howl and in a sense the birth of beats it was kind of tragic in a way Uh uh-huh and then afterwards i went up to the stage to the front of the stage to sort of say hello to allen ginsberg and next to me was abby hoffman and he said to me pretty good huh (laughs) (laughs) meaning you know the i think the reading of howl not bad
1: not bad
2: (laughs) but you know never do a second annual anything that's what uh Stuart Brand of the Whole Earth, Whole Earth Catalog famously said.
1: Hallelujah.
0: Yeah. So Sam, how
1: do we or relate to the quarantine, the great pause? Can you reflect a little bit on that? I, I want to um, try to think through the abstraction.
0: I, yeah, yeah, I hear you. I think one yes. direct way in which it's relevant is that this is a real opportunity for us to look in the mirror to look at ourselves. This is an opportunity for recollecting, you know, recalling, recollecting ourselves. And even, I think though, literally looking in a mirror, that's what Mallarmé uh, would do as a form of meditation until he he disappeared, which I've Mm -hmm. tried. (laughs) And it does kind of work.
2: I've had that experience of staring into the mirror and seeing this ancient Siberian warrior staring back at me, like, the longer you stare in the mirror, the further back in time you go until you kind of reach your ancestral self. And also, I think, for me, a lot of the feeling of the quarantine is moving back in time. I was thinking about that, how, uh, for you know, living in the country, the actual physical circumstances of my life are so subtly different. But one real difference is I can see route 28 from my house and there's less cars on route 28 and there's more people walking on the road and it's like every day we move backwards in time back before everything was dependent on automobiles and I it seemed to me when I was thinking about this we're kind of we're back to around the 1920s there's about the level of car traffic and the level of foot traffic that there was in the 1920s. This idea of that the quarantine is bringing us back. And of course, uh, ecologically, what did my friend tell me the other day? From uh, Delhi, you can now see the Himalayas. Yeah. This is like the I, first yeah. time in years, supposedly, that you can see that. that far. And it's like we're yeah. moving back before industrial civilization.
1: Yeah, it's just along these lines, my, uh, slightly different, but but similar. I was talking to my mother, who just turned 74 earlier this month, and she was saying that she feels returned to her childhood consciousness mm. more profoundly mm. than any other period in her life, uh, remembering the late 40s um, on, in the central part of Long Island when it was quite rural, and just the long stretches of time in the house and around the around the house and the lawn, walking around mm. the woods. Um, I guess with no teleological propulsion, that she just felt a return both historically and psychologically to this this earlier moment. No, I, I I thought that was a very interesting way of putting it.
2: What do you mean no teleological?
1: Oh, like impulse? like no you know, impulse to get something done or rush toward right. uh, a future objective, um, no impulse to live in the future, but just a, a, a deep presence that is um, perhaps more familiar to a child's consciousness than than an adult. Unless you're uh, adept at meditation, you worked, you know, to try to occupy the present a little bit more as an adult, but children do this naturally.
0: Hmm. Yeah, the, hmm. the one place that I wanted to reflect back on is you're, you're saying, Sparrow, that staying home is the new activism. Oh, yeah. And it seems as though some of these manifestations that you're talking about, and, and you too, Andrew, are, are aspects of this new activism called staying home. And I wonder if we could talk about that. We t- touched on one aspect of it, but I think there's more to it. Well, you know, I mean,
1: there's a lot to say there. I think that staying home is a political act. And uh, as a a form of activism, um, it it definitely contributes to the healing of planet Earth. Um, Sparrow mentioned the view of the Himalayas from um, New Delhi. I thought even in Cold Spring today, where my family went for an outing, the water and, and the paths we were walking on just felt so much more pristine, clarified on some level. You didn't see cigarette butts and um, soda cans, beer cans floating in um, the lake there. I forget the name of it. I think that is a form of activism. Also, um, what I'm thinking about at the the present moment is the um, British nun, the Buddhist nun who I mentioned last time we spoke Palmo, Tenzin Palmo. Uh, She wrote about being in the cave as a form of activism. I guess this is a Buddhist idea, but Mm -hmm. if you're at a home, if you're in an enclosed space and you're generating meritorious karma, there are um, cosmic implications for that that reality. Mm -hmm. One need not go out and and protest and bang at the doors of City Mm -hmm. Hall
0: Mm -hmm. in
1: order to participate in revolutionary Mm -hmm. you can Mm -hmm. do it home just by not running around frenetically and creating a lot of stress and in and motion. And, <laughs> you know, so that, that, that's just all I wanted to add in terms of the, uh, the new activism. The etymol, a uh, mirror in Latin is speculum.
2: Uh-huh. Speculum. Like to speculate, sort
1: of?
0: Yeah, exactly. Isn't that interesting? I mean, I think one of the aspects of the new activism is to determine how little you actually need. Because right Mm. now people aren't buying stuff, you know? They're creating more space by not buying more stuff. Mm. And in a way also, to just examine where you dwell, to examine Mm. the place where you live, um, as also a form of of mark, you know, that we're all mm. creating a mark through where we live, through our movements,
2: mm.
0: that to make a mark is conventionally ascribed to doing something in the world, like uh, acoustics. Funny yeah, what? What do you mean
2: acoustic? Where you hit somebody over the head with your acoustic and that's uh, when you're at war when you're a Native American, you mean?
1: So the, yeah, um, the um, the Crow Indians, um, right, um, and other tribes in uh, the Dakotas practiced uh, yeah um, warfare and symbolic what? Symbolic um, marking
0: through the acoustic. You hit somebody you hit a, another a, a, a warrior with your coup stick, and that's something. And then also, like big coup is when you take the other person's coup stick, isn't that? Oh, yeah. Cool? And mm-hmm. you
1: count coup. You count coup. Like you have a lot of um, gravitas, a lot of bling. If you you know you've taken a lot of sticks.
0: But that's the usual and that's the kind of understanding of making a mark, but to come to a new relationship, a new dwelling, to dwell on the mark that you make as a human being in the world, you know, Mm. that squiggly line that we make through Mm. our paths, even around, you know, a limited amount of space and Mm. to make more space. I think that's part of the new activism
1: Without a doubt, Shed. So well put.
0: without mm. a doubt, so well put. Mm. You know,
1: mm. physically mm.
0: and also in terms of our consumption patterns, and also I think in terms of our consciousness. Mm. See, mm. I think Sparrow's uh, been living, in some respects, in this manner for some time. He himself, in one of our earlier dialogues, spoke of making as little money as possible of, I assumed, at the back of it, or what you said, frankly, of sort of starving the beast.
2: (laughs) Yeah, You mean the beast that we are living in the belly of? I was just thinking of that phrase, like, in the 1960s, like, radical hippies would all say, hey, man, we're living in the belly of the beast. And you don't hear it anymore. It's a great phrase.
0: Jack Abbott.
1: Have you had periods where you've worried about money?
2: Yeah, I mean, I uh, I kind of worry a lot about money, but I don't really uh, have to, you know. I have enough money, but because I'm a big uh, saver, I'm a miser. So I I've saved up. I've been working part time. My, you know, except for about one year and maybe eight months of my life, I've worked part time at very low paying, generally low paying jobs. And, some, and somehow I've saved up, you know, $52,000. <laughs> so, you know, I don't really need to worry about money, but I but I don't make a lot of money. So sometimes I kind of, you know, I have just enough anxiety. I feel like God is sort of, I mean, I've had this idea for a while. God is sort of organizing my career, directing my career, directing my finances so that I'm not rich enough that I can just sit back and, you know, never have any anxiety, never have to do anything. But I, uh, I'm not poor enough that I have to really struggle. You know, I have kind of perfect deal.
1: And Sam, to answer your I, question, I'm I, intrigued by the fact that Thoreau begins Walden with his chapter on economy, and I mm. think in, in this new activism, you know, with this new re- yeah, just think about think um, economically in new ways. Sparrow is a um, paragon of this sort of thing, as you point out.
2: I mean, yeah. I do feel weirdly vindicated by the standstill by of civilization. This is like proving that I was right all along, and my life is almost, you know, unchanged. In fact, I might be the only person. I was thinking about this today, who's afraid that the quarantine is going to end too soon before I get to finish all my correspondence, get to address all the little pieces of paper on my piles, the things I'm supposed to be doing. Hit all of
0: our marks. Yeah, absolutely. I moved to Woodstock in part because I saw that it was safe. Interesting. And it turns out it is safe. I mean, Woodstock is completely you know, is, is best in class, at least this side of the, and either side of the river. I, I spend a lot of time um, over in Rhinebeck and, you know, as you know, Hudson's not bad, but this is the best place to live in the Hudson Valley, this area. Without a hmm. doubt. Yeah, without a doubt.
2: Yeah, I mean, I have a few things that I wanted to say. I was thinking of the phrase from what you were saying, uh, Sam, The I think, wasn't it Tip O'Neill who said all politics is local? This The feeling I have, and I think that you have, maybe that all of us have, of suddenly being really relegated to this very local area, and as if we're kind of knowing it for the first time, today my wife and I took a walk on this trail, kind of unmarked trail next to Wilson State Park, through a pine forest, just us, no one there. And... It was really uh, exhilarating, sacred, the word sacred came to mind. And oh yeah, and I was thinking of how my guru, uh, who really was considered himself uh, a revolutionary and who emphasized social service as the, essentially one of the main tenets of his uh, philosophy. He, one time he turned to his devotees and he said, there are people meditating in the Himalayas, and through their meditation, they keep the world going, or something like that. You know, that they are kind of uh-huh. the motors behind, They're, they are the reason that the universe still exists. So th- that, and that
0: connecting, connecting to that dynamo is yeah. one aspect of keeping going.
2: And there are two, and it's interesting that, that even that Buddhist nun we're talking about, who spent 12 years in isolation. And then what does she do now? She goes around and tells people about it and tells people what she learned from it. So you have that moment of interiorization and eventually something emerges from it, I think more often than not. So, I mean, we're all kind of in this cocoon right now and we don't know what's gonna emerge from it. I think there's a kind of collective anxiety that it's gonna be horrible.
0: Yeah, or I,
2: could be this kind of transformation that we're talking about
0: because there's another aspect to, to that idea of, of the mark of making a mark is also that people will we will, I will, I have return to making things mm-hmm. you know making that which you need. you know we got a sewing machine. we've been sewing clothes. oh yeah uh, Kim's been yeah Kim's been making masks. Yeah, um, you know, and we've got a garden now. You know, I've oh, been wow. working on building the deer fence and so forth. Yeah, but also making a lot of poetry and making a lot of different, you know, having a lot of projects like we're doing, and our mm-hmm. books. Are, uh, yes, our Parks.
2: collective book. That's yeah. that was one of the pieces I wanted to read. Was this book on uh, this book of collaborations? I don't know if this is the wrong time to do this but uh, my friend Greg Masters sent me this new book of poetry that he just published called Collaborations, which consists of collaborative poems that he wrote with Ted Berrigan, Allen Ginsberg, Bob Holman, Michael Skolnick, Eleanor Nowen, a whole bunch of kind of East Village poets. And I did turn to this one more or less by chance, but I like the way it looks on the page. It's uh, Steve Levine and Greg Masters written together. It's called, Well, Hello, for Arthur Rambeau. I'm standing in front of you at this hour without flowers and a little less careful where I'd been so careful before. Since I slammed my forehead on the door, jam and am, consequently lumbering lamely a little through your boudoir, spitting bits of Munster into the O.J. Oh, man. Beautiful. Spitting bits (laughs) of Munster into the O.J. Pretty funny. And, you know, I, I was thinking about collaboration and how this is the perfect moment for collaboration because it can be done remotely. We all have time. It's a nice way to make a sort of friendship with someone. My my daughter's friend sent her a cyanotype. Her her friend Sophia sent all her friends cyanotypes, So they're all which is some kind of form of film, where you put an object on fr- on top of the 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 film and then it it's copied. I think you put it out in the sun and then the sun sort of makes it into a kind of photo photograph. Uh huh. So, yeah. You know, it's another case of collaboration in this age of withdrawal. I mean, I for me, the part about going through the mirror, what I was thinking about most was my own book collection, my own library, if you can call it, dignify it with that term, which is like the hundreds of books I have in the garage, that almost all of which I got for free. And... Suddenly, I have time to go and look at these books, read some of them. And it's like these are parts of my unconscious that I normally block off. It's almost like I'm going deeper and deeper into my library. Looking at these books, I've had for years. I didn't even know what they were. I just read this Uh book called He Who Gets Slapped by Leonid Andreev, who's a somewhat well-known Russian writer of the early 20th century. And I've had this book, I always sort of assumed it was some kind of mystery novel from the 1930s, but in fact it's a play set in a circus, first produced in America in 1922. And the book is a first edition from 1922. By going back and reading, and I'm reading a whole bunch of these strange books that are like kind of parts of myself that I've never examined. I don't know. It's it's almost like I've gone through the mirror of the present into the past of my literary, you know, treasures. A <laughs> uh, place to get lost. Yeah. And a place that was kind of repressed. Because, because you know, you have these books and you think, well, I'm never going to read this book. I'm too busy. or New book will come and I'll read that first. And like this whole idea that I've had about traveling back into the past—it's like I'm traveling huh. also, literally and figuratively, back into the past.
0: But it also sounds a little bit like you're catching up. Yeah, and catching up. An aspect of this dwelling is—you know—you're catching up. Yeah. You're catching up with all that reading and watching and. You know, also,
2: and the building. thing, oh, yeah, the last time we spoke, afterwards, I emailed you guys and I said, oh, my God, we forgot to mention the fact that not everyone is sitting around doing nothing. It's not, not for everyone is uh, uh, staying home, the new activism. For right. many people and, you know, from large sections of the working class in particular, they're still working. And they're doing these so-called essential services. And so it's not that everyone's doing nothing. It's we, And we have to, uh, you know, show our remen- immense uh, respect and gratitude to the, the people that, you know, are literally putting their lives on the line to sell us celery and pinto beans and could die as a result of it for $12 an hour. I mean, well, that it, is heroism.
1: You know... Um, you know, I'm um, Sparrow. It really, yeah, I, This is what I've been saying to myself recently. It's a rich man's disease and a poor man's fatality. Uh-huh. This is a disease of transnational globalism. But um, yeah, th- those very individuals who have to work these essential jobs to get by, right, are um, ten- disproportionately are, are the ones who get sick and um, very tragically seem to be passing on in um, the largest numbers.
0: I want to just pause it. I'm an ambulance driver.
1: Yes. For no, <laughs> no money.
0: Yeah. Right. You money, get nothing. Yeah. yeah, yeah.
2: So you're right. like, you're risking your life for free. <laughs> That's even more heroic. Here you move to the safest place in the world. And then you got the most dangerous job in the world.
0: I did. Yeah. Yeah. I just wanted to keep my family yeah. safe. Sparrow. Yeah.
1: What do you mean? Oh, I see. Not you.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I can, you know, take care of myself. Yeah.
1: Sparrow, you raise a profound point. In my job, I work for um, a very wealthy demographic, you know, a very wealthy school. I teach a lot of billionaires and multimillionaires and especially Ooh. folks who have um, made a lot of money through financial services. And I see the um, class disparity in striking terms in regard to... Um, zoom teaching where you see people's homes you know where, where, yeah. where they're right now and some are in closets in the bronx and harlem the the um scholarship kids and that but the vast majority are in geographically desirable locations sitting in adirondack chairs with great panoramas of the atlantic ocean so um <laughs> i've been thinking a lot about um class and how we uh how it how it influences the different ways that people have experienced social distancing. But the point I wanted to make is it occurred to me that, have you guys read John Ashbery's Self-Portrait in a Convex Mirror before?
2: Or recently? I did read it, long ago,
1: definitely. The artist, Francesco Pamigianino, is indoors looking into a mirror and trying to capture that, while there's a plague Mm. raging through Florence. In addition to um, geopolitical instability, it's being sacked by some group. This is in the mid-16th century. But he's indoors looking into a mirror. Uh, it just it struck me. It struck me as so. Um, this podcast and to the phenomenon we're talking about.
0: Mm-hmm. I also think that would make an excellent podcast. Oh, uh-huh. To just do Ashbury's self-portrait in a convex glass, definitely. Yeah. And also,
2: I guess we should say that we are on Skype at the moment, so we are looking at ourselves in convex mirrors. We can see little images of ourselves on the screen while we speak.
0: Yeah.
2: So we're kind of literally, maybe not convex. A little. While we're looking
0: into, we're looking into these small mirror images of ourselves.
2: I want to say one more political point which is what my wife told me today. She, read, she gets these little summaries from the New York Times on uh, email. And the Times, I guess, said that now for the first time, I don't know, in the world's history or at least since World War II, the majority of the workforce is female because the majority of these essential workers, it turns out, are women. So between the women doing these necessary jobs, like selling your food and work, and doing the healthcare work and doing working as aides for the elderly, they're also making these masks on their own. You know, all over women are sewing these masks, which is seems to me somehow connected to the pussy hats. The same people that made pussy hats for the women's march. Uh, are now making masks. You know, in many cases, beautiful masks. The mask I got from this local woman, Bethia, is uh, just delightful. (laughs) Kabuki-looking. So there's something about the feminization of society that the women are saving us. The women are rising up in this challenge. You know, and as three men who are, whatever, very theoretically feminists. I think we have to mention that.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, it's also interesting uh, because these masks are kind of marks. They mark one.
2: They do become your identity. Yeah, I was thinking about at the uh, food pantry a couple of weeks ago. I don't know if I said this last time, that everybody was suddenly wearing masks, and there were... There were different sort of styles of masks, different fashions of masks, where like the aging hippie women would wear scarves over their mouths, like maybe paisley scarves. And um, there's a guy that I know who's a luthier, who was making uh, guitars, and he wore his luthier mask, his workman's mask. And then the young punks wore these kerchiefs over their face like bank robbers, and This is a new opportunity for people to make individual statements. The mask fashion.
1: Sparrow, do you wear a mask or do you abstain?
2: I wear a mask when it's necessary. But so far, I've just... Well, the problem is we got these masks from this woman, Bethia Waterman, I think her name is. And then my wife said, you know, they're very thick. They're kind of two pieces of cloth. They're very hard to breathe through. So, So Violet said, let me wash them. So she washed them to like make them more breathable. And now mine shrunk and I can't use it anymore. It's too small for my head. <laughs> so I guess I'm back. I've been using a, like a this same scarf that I always wear, but I'm going to go to a bandana, I think. That's right. my new plan. I want to be like those young punks. I'm very punk. This is my self-image is like really deep down I'm a punk. Or at least an aspirational punk. Ha ha! It's a good time to rob a bank. That one is the thought I've had. Except that maybe none of the banks are open. Ha
1: ha
2: ha. That's the paradox of this uh, quarantine.
0: Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. And please join us next time. And remember to stay tuned and strange.